Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. So this morning, um, as we get into the message, um, I've got a couple quick announcements and um, um, wanted to make you aware of these things. Um, I did hear back um, just yesterday from um, from the, the the group that's going to be working on our parking lot edition, um, and um, and so that's um, that's exciting. Hopefully, um, uh, we did get um, some costing stuff from them, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more probably on Thursday night. Um, but uh, the goal would be, and it's it's going to be very. Actually, the Lord's already given the money, so yeah. we, we already have the money. The Lord has supplied. Yeah, so that's not even an issue. The Lord's good at that. Um, he's taking care of that. Thank you, Amber. Um, and um, so we're going to deal with that a little bit on Thursday. Um, but it looks like if it doesn't get cold enough, we may have to wait until summer, just because of the uh, of not becoming some type of mud fest. Um, although Aaron might appreciate, he could bring his uh, he bring his dirt bikes out, and we could have our own little uh, our own little supercross out back. But um, so that's kind of uh, that's kind of pending. Um, I wanted to say a couple of very special thank yous. You might notice that in the pew in front of you is now a tithe and offering envelope holder that will hold the envelopes. <laughs> In, in, in the pew in front of you, the envelopes actually now fit inside of that rather than being kind of cattywampus uh, sticking out of it or um, in, the, in the hymn holder. Um, Doug took time last week and took all of those home, um, and I think he uh, – I don't know if he, if he chiseled or if he routered or if he dremeled or if he uh, – what he did. But whatever he did, he brought it back and they fit. He may have stretched them. I don't know if he's got a wood stretcher at home maybe. Um, so he may have uh, used his wood stretcher, um, but uh, we want to say a very, very special thank you to Doug for taking time to do that. I actually, um, it was done Thursday, and I didn't say anything because I wanted to make sure to, to uh, mention it um, when he was here just to say thank you very much. Um, also, you'll probably notice that in our restrooms, there is some beautiful new artwork uh, that Brittany um, that Brittany donated. Not only did she um, take the time to uh, put that up on Thursday night after church, but she donated um, the photos and the frames um, and all the expenses associated to it. So thank you very, very, very much, Brittany, for the beautiful new art we have in our bathrooms. It is awesome, and uh, it is an absolute encouragement when I need to use the restroom to have beautiful art in there. And water seeds, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So if you guys struggle with going, going potty in public, maybe the, the water scenes might help. Um, so no, they, they're, they're absolutely beautiful, and, and Britt did a great job with those. They look great. It, was, it just made my, made my night. I was super, super happy. Um, uh, last announcement, this Thursday, uh, Mr. Noah Taylor is going to be speaking um, and uh, the great professor, and uh, so he's going to be uh, teaching this Thursday night, so please make sure that you attend. Um, 
and uh, and that you bless Noah and pray for him as he is preparing to speak. Um, I think he's the goal is he asked me what was kind of important, and I said, well, really, I've, I've been hoping that everybody here would get saved. So that's kind of his goal uh, that's put in front of him. Is that, uh, that so? I'm I'm expecting a humdinger. Uh, so, all right. Well, this morning. We're going to get uh, a little bit nitty-gritty, and we've got, uh, I've got three pages of notes that I wrote yesterday, and there's no way in the world that we're going to get through all of this. So um, I really don't have any idea where we're going to stop. I kind of know where we're going to start, um, but I have no idea where we're going to stop. Um, and there's a whole second element or phase to this teaching that we're probably going to look at Thursday. Um, that I was going to try to fit in today, but um, you know, it's like when they, it's like when they come around. It's like when you go to the what's that, uh, what's that meat restaurant in Indy, uh, Texas de Brazil, or or um, uh, Fogo de Chao, I think is the one in Indy. It's kind of like that, where you know, it, it it all is good, but at some point you've just got to turn the green thing to red and say, you know what? At this point, I've already got the meat sweats, so I'm going to have to call it a night. Uh, and so I was afraid that, uh, that you would have the meat sweats if we continued through all that I, I really had intended to share. Um, we're going to be talking this morning about identity, and specifically, uh, we're going to be talking this morning about how identity pertains to emotionalism, and how identity pertains to our purpose, and how identity directly is associated to this idea of stewarding heaven. We spoke on, um, it'd be three services ago now, uh, we kind of kicked this off with the idea, and I, I'm just going to give a little bit of a platform, but uh, we spoke about the idea that it is the, the primary objective within stewarding his presence and stewarding the, the atmosphere of heaven is, number one, to guard with jealousy our hunger for him. That's it. And really, that is kind of... Uh, to a large degree over the last two weeks, what he's been taking us through in the spirit realm. I, I hope everybody understands what's been happening. But he's, he is pulling upon elements of our desire and hunger for him. So then we spoke about um, signs and wonders. And we spoke about how that there are things that he's going to be doing and continually doing within this atmosphere. That it is our responsibility to steward. It requires an environment that welcomes risk. It, it, it requires an environment that will be safe enough for people to fail. Notice I did not say safe enough for people to succeed. Why? Because succeeding is easy. Allowing yourself to stand alongside someone when they get it right is easy. Allowing yourself to stand alongside them when they get it wrong is hard. And in church, we've done a really good job at stand along, standing alongside of people when they get it right. We've done a really bad job of standing along people when they get it wrong. So um, that is, that's the second phase. The third thing we talked about on Thursday night is um, what it means to prosper or to be in abundance in your lane. And, and that's a very important thing. How do you, where you are, prosper and be in abundance? And we, we shared that there were, I think, four elements of that. Number one, the lordship 
in your heart. The, uh, literally, that he's going to touch upon areas of your heart, and he's going to deal with lordship. Every issue of abundance starts with lordship. He's going to test in our hearts who is in charge in every avenue. And the next thing that's going to happen is he's going to touch honor. He's going to touch our ability to celebrate people alongside of us that in some ways um, are, it would appear to us they're getting more than they deserve. He does that. The, the third thing um, he, he touched on or had us look at is generosity. The requirement above what is commanded. Tie, we, we mentioned this, tithes and offerings are not a part of generosity. Tithes and offerings are a commandment. That's not an option. That is our payment. That is uh, uh, found from Abraham, the father of all the walk in faith. It's ratified by the law of Moses and again ratified by Jesus. If you would prefer, um, because I've heard people say, well, tithing is an Old Testament thing. The New Testament says um, that, that you were to give everything. Fine. Just hand me your checkbook. It's amazing to me how many people use the we're supposed to give everything and not tithe thing and then don't give anything. So no problem. If you won't go there, let's go there. But the reality of it is, what he says is that our tithe is something that's required. Generosity is above that. Generosity is not something that's required. It would be like you saying you were generous because you went to a restaurant, ate the food, and paid the bill. That's not generosity. Generosity is when you tip. Okay? So, generosity is the other, is the third element of walking in abundance. In my opinion, the abundance and prosperity you walk in is directly related to your willingness to be generous. That doesn't, that doesn't end with money, but it certainly includes it. Okay? That is in your time, that is in your, um, that is in your emotions, that is in your, um, your conversation. All of those things are part of generosity. It's who he is, and we demonstrate his, his image in that regard. Fourth was um, the uh, contentment, the ability to be content in all things, to be content in abounding and to be content in lack. How do we, in moments where it doesn't seem like we have as much as we would like to have, still be in contentment? That, those are the four uh, principles, if you will, of abundance. Today we're going to look at something, and I'm going to read something that I shared on, um, on Thursday night. And because it, in many ways I was trying to set the stage for what we're going to be talking about today. Kingdom abundance, once again, is more than enough for your place in life. The reason I want to address this is because I believe the Lord is wanting to establish a people that are prosperous in every way. This starts with emotional prosperity. It is my opinion that a large part of the church that are really walking with the Lord are, are in many cases that I've experienced spiritual giants and emotional infants. They're really, really, really good when you get them in the spirit realm, but they're pretty horrible everywhere else. That's just true. Now, I've also met Christians who are emotional giants and spiritual infants who are just really good at their caring, their compassion, their kind. They've got all that stuff worked out. But when it comes to the spirit realm, the supernatural realm kind of stuff, they don't want anything to do with it. 
I would contend that you're only as emotionally well as you are spiritually well. They are tied together. In fact, 1 John says that he would that we would prosper and be in health as what? Your soul prospers. So the whole point of this is how do we become a people that are prosperous in every way? That we would actually, now this is the, this is the goal. I said this on Thursday night. I'm going to keep saying this. We're going to keep hammering and hammering on this. My goal is that we would be at this level. We're not there now. Let me just say this. I'm not there now. But that we would be emotionally sound enough that we can navigate adverse winds, much like a sailor that will sail with the wind after adjusting the sail and the rudder. That when adverse winds come, we know how to adjust things and allow those things to propel us forward and not be stopped. That we would emotionally become healthy enough this is the goal. To the degree that anyone or anything from our past could confront us and we would not be driven into shame, fear, condemnation, unforgiveness, or lack. That anyone from your past or anything from your past could be put in front of you and it would not cause you to be emotionally stirred in a negative manner. Now, we're not there. I'm not there. But that's the goal. That's where he wants us to go. He wants us to be at such a level that the most shameful thing, and we've all got them, okay? And it can mean a lot of different stuff. But the most shameful thing, the most emotionally difficult thing could be presented in front of you and you not be taken back because you're not defined by that thing any longer. You with me? Mm -hmm. Okay. We're going to really, we're, this is going to get really real. You might regret the fact that you came. Or you might really, really appreciate the fact that you came, depending on how you take it. That's always something great to hear from a pastor on a Sunday morning. But yeah, I'm not going to stop this sermon until you regret the fact that you came. That's just wonderful, isn't it? I'm just teasing. It's not going to be bad. Religion has historically <clears throat> mislabeled men and women who have had some of history's greatest encounters with God. Religion is still at this time mislabeling many who are having earth-shattering encounters or earth-shaking encounters with God. Because religion is not permitted to perceive reality, in, or in reality, the depths of the encounter, religion will also not be able to perceive the re-identification that comes on the other side of that encounter. What religion does is religion because it will not allow us... Now, let me just say, when I say the word religion, we all are part of that club. We've all got it. We've all got to get rid of it, but we've all got it. When, if you think you have none, you just found yours. It's kind of like the here's your sign. There's your sign. You just found yours. So when we're talking about these kinds of things, religion, because it is not permitted to see correctly the encounter with God, religion then is not allowed correctly to allow you to be re-identified 
by that encounter with him, but in most cases will continue to define you by what existed prior to that encounter. And it is my contention that every single aspect of your identity should be traced back to divine encounter. Do not trust, hear me, do not trust any avenue of the definition of your identity that you have that did not come from divine encounter. Now, we allow ourselves and our identity to be defined by problems, by challenges, by rejection, by uh, situations that are stirred. We are legally in the kingdom not permitted to allow those things to define us. We should not trust any aspect of our identity that we use to define us that we cannot trace back to divine encounter with him. Because any other thing is out of a different mindset than what he has said about you, and anything that he has not said about you is a lie. Anything that he has not said about you is a lie. So within that, and you think, wow, this is really crazy. Well, it's called the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. So collectively, what we're supposed to be doing is we're supposed to be more and more and more empowering and shoring up one another's ability to think like he thinks. Because there are going to be moments when I'm not doing well at thinking like he thinks. And I'm thinking other things because people have told me other things. It becomes then your job to empower me to think like he thinks because you've seen what he says I am. That's our job. That's why we have the mind of Christ. I don't. It's a we thing. Why? Because the mind of Christ was always designed to be achieved by family. I'm just going to leave that alone because that's a rabbit trail in and of itself. The mind of Christ was never intended or designed to be achieved individually. That's why me and Jesus doesn't work. The me and Jesus people... Don't work. They will only be able to go so far. Why? Because the way it's supposed to work is you're supposed to find a father who introduces you to a family. That's how it's supposed to work. So we can have the mind of Christ collectively because it is supposed to be something we discover in that way. We, when we pray and welcome the kingdom, it's never my father who is in heaven. Our father. Why? Because it was designed for us to find it together. Because religion is not permitted to perceive reality in the depths of the encounter, religion will also not be able to perceive the re-identification. That's a big word. Re-identification. Because it misidentifies, it won't allow it to be re-identified. One of the things that we've heard a lot lately, and I'm, I'm just going to mention this and move on. It, it really is is not detrimental, but it kind of sparked some of my thought with this, um, that we've heard a lot lately because of some of the, the um, maybe salacious, but, but um, difficult stories that have come out recently about the White House and the administration and our president specifically, including more and more and more things about his past, uh, relationships that he had had, things of that nature. I, I don't need to go into it. One of the things that I've heard a lot from people that are defending him are saying that we all have a before Christ, that we all have a before you got saved. And 
what happens is religion doesn't have a hard time saying you can have done whatever you wanted before you got saved. But what religion does have a hard time with is saying it's like it can draw that line. And in reality, if I can be very honest with you, that's why we totally get messed up when we talk about the old things are passed away, all things have become new. And we think that that is a dated thing that is associated to our salvation encounter. So then when somebody manifests some messed up behavior after the point of their salvation, our only recourse is then to question their salvation and tell them they need to get resaved. Because I have no problem thinking that our president has had 55 affairs, but as long as it was before he was walking with Jesus. And then we say it's okay. But what happens when somebody stumbles after? We then do one of two things. Because encounter is supposed to identify, or maybe better said, re-identify who we are. And unfortunately, what happens is the people around us have oftentimes a tendency to say, nope, this thing, apparently that encounter wasn't real. Do you realize I've actually, I, I'm sharing, this is okay. Uh, one time, there was another pastor that told my mom that I, as a pastor, was not saved. The reason they justified that I wasn't saved, I think there was a, an instance, uh, I don't even remember what it was. I had done something. Surprise, surprise. You know? Probably played in a bar. Uh, and, you know, so, uh, no, that definitely would have been not saved. No, it was something really small. It was something um, that my, my dad and I had gotten into an argument or something like that. And they said, well, then he's not saved because if he was saved, old things are passed away. All things have become new. He doesn't act like that anymore. Now, he wasn't the first one, and I assure you won't be the last to question whether I'm saved. But the point of that is we have no problem with the identification that is either before you got saved or after you got saved. But the church fails miserably because of religion at allowing us to be re-identified based on encounter. And we then have a problem when people manifest things that are maybe not acceptable with what we believe they're supposed to be or maybe what the scripture says they're supposed to be. And we immediately then fall back to the problem, the problem, the problem. Why? Because the two things that drive all of our religion in Western civilization are have you prayed a prayer, the repeat after me, and are you going to heaven? The question we would turn and ask one another in altar call scenarios, if you died on your way home today, would you spend eternity in heaven? Honestly, it is my opinion that we would the church at large would do well to remove the language of heaven and hell from the equation of walking with God. Then we would find out who wants to walk with God and we would find out who wants to go to heaven when they die. Because people who are obsessed with going to heaven when they die will never be permitted to see the opportunity to welcome heaven while they're alive.
The normal church, or excuse me, the nominal church, which the word nominal just means in name only. The nominal church will only be qualified or ever be qualified to help people to manage their issues. But that system will never be able to leverage identificational transformation because it continues to empower people to manage their issues and then when they fail in their management, it identifies them with their issue. It begins to identify us directly with our issue. few examples of this because religion still does this and you find it in your Bible and you're going, oh, really? Okay, so uh, I, I just made a few notes here. Has anybody ever heard of blind Bartimaeus? Blind Bartimaeus is the guy that was blind. Jesus was walking by. He cried out. Um, and in an incredible story, Jesus allowed him to be healed. He got up. He could see he left. We still call him blind Bartimaeus. Why? Because religion is only permitted to allow us to identify by the issue. And then we wonder why when people are saved, they still are shameful whatever. And they still are unforgiven whatever. And they still are bitter whatever. But in reality, we look at a story like blind Bartimaeus. The man was so hungry that he actually broke several laws religion had put upon him as a position of his malady. And he cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the thing that we walk away with as the religious church is the fact that the guy was blind. First name blind, last name Bartimaeus. And we do it in church today. Now, we may not do it blatantly, we may not do it openly, but we allow emotional challenges to continue to define and identify who we are. And we may not do it out loud, thank God, but we do it. And why in the world do we have things like, so, blind Bartimaeus, the demoniac at the gar uh, in the garden. The guy comes to Jesus falls at his feet, is immediately healed, and Jesus establishes him as an apostle over ten cities. And the thing that we're impressed by and name him by is that he was full of demons. Why? Because religion will not permit us to allow an encounter to re-identify somebody because I already know them as the demoniac. In fact, do you realize that the religious leaders in the area were so troubled by Jesus freeing this guy and calling him to be the apostle over the Decapolis is the area he was in, which means the, the area of ten cities? Jesus tells him, I want you to be now the apostle over these ten cities. Like, Tuesday, guy has 5,000 demons running around naked, cutting himself with rocks. No chain will hold him. He's running through town. They have no issue. Next day, he now is apostle over ten cities. And do you realize that religion was so messed up about it that they asked Jesus to put him back? They actually said we would prefer him in his old state. Why? Because they could identify him. 
They had the ability. He was easy to identify when he was naked, running through town, being crazy. They would say, well, that's just George. Better bring the dogs and cats in so he doesn't eat them. Had no issue. But as soon as the guy is clothed in his right mind and called to be an apostle over 10 cities, they say, we can't handle this because we don't know how to identify it. We don't know the identity of this. We can't handle that. That makes us uncomfortable. Can you put him back? So they actually kicked Jesus out of town because he won't put the demons back in him. The woman taken in the act of adultery. Jesus writes in, in the dirt, if you remember, and, and writes all these things, looks to the, the, uh, the religious leaders that are getting ready to stone. Notice that the man is not around. Notice that they took the woman. They high-fived the guy. Let's just be real. Took the woman, and we're going to stone her for this action. Jesus calls her forgiven. We still call her the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. See, the church still looks at you and calls you angry Bob and bitter Bill. And let's be real. There's still elements of that that then we allow to define us because encounter is to redefine us. But in doing so, we wonder why people still stay in shame when they're still identified as that thing and we don't allow that encounter to change who we are. Because in the midst of, as soon as we see a sprout that reminds us of what they were before that encounter, we say, oh, they're not really changed. He's still, um, I don't know, she's still pornographic Debbie. He's still Hennessy Harry. I knew it. <laughs> true and in reality Jesus Jesus allowed people to be in process enough that they could still be messed up and what he would do rather than remind them that that's the old nature he would just remind them of what they are the woman at the well the church still calls her the Samaritan woman at the well. Do you realize what, and this, is, this blows me away. If I can be really honest, this is just a side note. There, I, have, I have gotten more, most of my study, reading, and impact that I've experienced in the last year has come from people who've been dead for 150 years. Because we've been so messed up in how we, the, the, the current postmodern American church has defined things that we're still calling her the woman at the well. What the, what the early church called her was St. Fultini. Do you realize that this St. Fultini, when you look up, that's her name. They actually sainted her. This woman who was at the well, this conversion that she had. Remember Jesus said, go get your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, yeah, I know, because you've been running around with Roxanne. Run around with everybody. Okay? You've been doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And he said, you've got five guys, and the guy you're with now is not even your husband. 
you know? So whenever you're talking about that kind of thing, we still allow that to define her. She was so changed by that prophetic encounter that she was sainted by the early church, and she was actually, when they were in the church in Jerusalem and the, uh, Rome was attacking them, they called for St. Fultini to come. She was actually brought before Caesar and refused to deny Jesus in front of Caesar, gave her life as a leader of the apostolic church. John, Peter, and James looked to her as an example. We call her the woman at the well. She was eventually thrown to the bottom of an empty well and killed because she wouldn't deny it. They tried three times to kill her. Twice she didn't die. But religion says the identification is by her issue. We spoke on Thursday night about the, the, the um, rich young ruler. That's another one that religion kind of messes up because if you look at rich young ruler, so though, though that's a pretty good name, the rich young ruler. This is the guy that came to Jesus and because his trust was in the wrong place, he wasn't permitted to welcome the kingdom of heaven. But we call him the rich young ruler. Why? Because we've got a messed up idea of what wealth is. We call him rich. He was very, very poor. We call him rich, but he was very, very poor. And the challenge is both spectrums of these misidentifications are equally dangerous. If we recognize that somebody is no longer misidentified by their inferior sin nature reality or their past failures, we also have to embrace that we cannot... Uh, be willing to remain defined by an inferior success. Let me say that again. If we're willing to understand that we can't be defined by a past reality or a, an issue uh, of our past, we also have to be unwilling to be defined by an inferior version of success. Because him as the rich young ruler looks like success, and I, I, I promise you that the church would applaud him. I promise you that the church would applaud him. The pastor would spend extra time with him just to make sure he was happy so that he would keep giving. Jesus said he was unable to inherit the kingdom of heaven. That means he didn't go to heaven. But he was not permitted to welcome heaven on earth. Why? Because his trust was in the wrong place. We still call him a rich young ruler. Jesus pointed out the travesty that was really how poor he was. Identification is the root of all function, whether righteous or unrighteous. Identification is the root of all function, whether righteous or unrighteous. If you are, allow yourself to be misidentified by your issue, it will directly impact and affect your ability to function. You cannot be in shame and operate in faith at the same time. One reality is going to win. You have a right to question, I mentioned this earlier, everything that you believe about yourself that is not a secondary result of a divine encounter in proximity. 
All right, look with me, if you will. Uh, John chapter 15, you have that verse on your sheet. I've got a whole other page of notes, and I think I'm going to skip those today just because it would probably be a good idea. John 15 is one of my favorite, favorite stories. This is an example of how Jesus, uh, oh, I say stories, uh, it really is a teaching of Jesus. This is an example of how Jesus taught that he dealt with emotions. Because once again, what is the goal? The goal is that we be emotionally healthy enough that anything from our past or anyone from our past could be presented to us and it not have an emotional ramification. Why? Because I'm no longer defined or identified by my issue. The world says you are, and the church says you are. He says you're not. It's our job as a family to continue to empower the re-identification process that comes with the deconstruction of religion in our lives. Until you get willing to allow religion to become deconstructed, you will never be permitted to be re-identified. John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit in and of itself, except it abide in the vine. And no more can you, except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast, cast forth as a branch and is withered. Men gather him and cast them into the fire. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. This is how my Father is glorified when you bear fruit. I know I read that a little bit differently than it's written, but that's what it says. You want to know how God is glorified? You being fruitful. So let me ask you a question. Why have we said that we are on one hand okay with being spiritually fruitful and on the other hand with becoming emotionally withered? And why do we believe that the more emotionally withered we become, the more spiritually fruitful we become. See, I've always been taught in church that emotions is bad. So what I was taught in church is that I didn't need to deal with my fear. I needed to speak to it and tell it to shut up. I need to plead the blood of Jesus. I need to fast. I need to quote scripture to it. I didn't need to deal with bitterness. I just needed to tell it to get thee behind me. I didn't need to deal with rejection. Because I'm not supposed to deal with emotions. When an emotion raises its head, I just need to become more spiritual. Yeah. When emotions rear their head, I was just told to get more spiritual. Well, that's really interesting. However, that's not scriptural. I would that you prosper and be in health as your soul, which is the word for emotions, prosper. And there are more mentally unstable 
spiritual giants out there than we would like to admit. When I say mentally unstable, I mean emotionally. Which is why we can't be regularly effective. He does not intend to leave you emotionally withered so that you can become spiritually fruitful. Because the way that God is glorified is by you becoming fruitful in all things, and that includes emotionally. So, when we look at this, there's a few things that, that floor me. Maybe it won't mean much to you. There are a few elements of this that absolutely just wreck me about how Jesus works. What happens in this example is that he tells them, okay, I'm the vine, my father's the husbandman, you're the branch, and what my intention is, is that you would bear fruit, and that my father will be glorified, and I will rejoice as you bear fruit. So what's supposed to happen is, we then, as the branch starts shooting out, we're, we're bearing fruit, fruit's happening. And you know what actually Jesus says is the reward of your fruit bearing? Pruning. Here's the example, best example I can give you. So, you bear fruit, branch goes out, you know, fruit comes hanging off of it, low-hanging or otherwise, and he comes along and says, great job, clip. That's my son, clip. He rejoices over you that you're being fruitful, clip. Why? Because Jesus understood that you can't prune a branch you can't see. So what he actually does is he created an environment that allowed the disciples to become fruitful because in many cases, the roots of something could be righteous and the manifestation be wrong. So he would empower people. He would empower them to dream big dreams. There's something that, that amazes me as you study the lives of the disciples. I've spent like the last six months just reading about the disciples over and over. Because I'm trying to figure out, okay, maybe if I can understand them, I can understand Jesus in a different way too. So as I've been reading about them, one of the things that strikes me that we've missed is that these guys were fishermen. And somehow I would just like to think that while they were in the process of running the family fishing business, they probably were not thinking at that time about how they could change the world. They probably were not singing, I want to be a history maker, while they were out there throwing nets. But as soon as you get around Jesus, he stirs within you the capacity to dream. He stirs within you the capacity to believe for things that you never thought you could believe for and pulls out of you desires that are divine in nature, that are supernatural in nature, but are actually beyond what you thought were possible and you didn't even know they were there. And I assure you that Jesus didn't handpick these guys because they were dreamers. He handpicked them because they would follow in the midst of being in his presence they became dreamers. But the challenge with dreamers is that he they would they're still messed up so they would dream things about how they could be great in fact jesus would tell so here's here's the example so they get around jesus and they're messed up they're just messed up they get around jesus and he tells them these things and greater things will you do so he's telling them you're going to do greater things than me however that gets manifested by them arguing within one another about who's the greatest now hear me, Here's my, hear my point. 
Jesus tells them and engenders an atmosphere whereby righteous fruit can come. Growth can come by telling them, you're going to do greater things than I have. Imagine Jesus telling you this. And he does it all the while knowing that there's going to be a uh, misappropriation or a mess that they make of it. But he also understands that as soon as they get in the midst of it and start arguing about who's greater, it's just a misapplication of what he's been stirring within them to do greater things than he has. And he says, perfect, that's evidenced itself, now I can prune it. He literally waits for you to take risk, embrace what he said, and mess it up so that he can prune it. We've said, don't do it, don't make a mess, don't take a risk, and that means you're pure. He says, get out there, bear fruit, mess it up, because then there's a branch I can do something with. We tell people to not have branches and not have fruit, and that means you're holy. So the way he actually prunes us, and I'm talking about emotions. I'm talking about deep stuff within us. Because the reality is, if you think that God's going to tell everybody in this house that you're going to change the world, and that you're not going to have ego issues, or you're not going to have honor issues, or you're not going to have bitterness issues, or you're not going to have rejection issues with people that you're serving alongside of, you're wrong. And so in the midst of that, when the presence of the Lord comes to stir within you the capacity to change the world. I mean, this is like some Alexander the Great kind of stuff. Change the world. We're believing that Greencastle isn't going to look like it looks now in five years. That his presence is going to pervade the town. We're believing that Indiana is not going to look like it looks now. We just, 30 minutes ago, took control over a demonic spirit that has been causing shootings in our schools. He wants that, but in the same right, he also knows that alongside of that, we're going to mess it up. We're going to get emotional, we're going to get offended, we're going to get hurt, we're going to get angry, we're going to get rejected, we're going to get all this kind of stuff. And what we do when they do that is we smack people on the hand and say, nope, you messed that up, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't step out there. What he does is he says, perfect, you've done exactly what I wanted. Now the reward of that is I get to prune, because until you got willing to become fruitful, I couldn't prune that. You can't prune a branch you can't see. So religion then identifies us with the mistake because as soon as a branch shoots out there, we're stretched in some way and we there's stuff inside that still isn't right and we mess it up. So we look at each other then and say, well, you really still haven't changed. You've still got that old sin nature because the Bible says all things are passed away and all things have become new and apparently you just need to pray and get right with Jesus again. And what he says is, that's what I've been wanting all along. I wanted you to display that iniquity. Why? Because now it's out there. Now I can do something with it. But we've got to be willing to be in a company of people that are willing to let that stuff happen. And he's looking for it within disciples. You realize that right after they got done arguing about who was greater, nobody left the group. Why? Because he had created such an atmosphere of acceptance that even in the the greatest opportunity you could have for offense, even in that moment, they didn't walk away. Because Jesus didn't deal with what the problem was. 
by allowing that to re-identify who they were or take from them the ability to be able to operate. Notice he tells them, you're going to do greater things than I am. They argue about who's greater, and Jesus' response isn't to take to them or to reel in the greater things than I will do, you'll do. His response is to prune it and to send them out to do more. Why? Because when he sends them out to do more, there's going to be another thing that he gets to prune. That's how he does it. If you look at the scripture, the other thing that I find to be a little bit fascinating is that when the scripture says you are clean, and I believe this is verse 3, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. When the scripture says you are clean already, now you're clean already through the word that I've spoken. The word clean is the same word as, as pure or prune. So when it says to you he's going to prune you, that's the same word as clean. So it literally says... Now you're clean throughout the word I've spoken. This is why it is so absolutely vital, crucial, detrimental to us that we continue to hear his voice. Why? Because it's his voice that speaks to us and makes us pure. It's his voice that will speak to us about the things that are out of bounds and out of line. And what happens within our nature is we have a tendency when somebody then manifests a branch and there's stuff hanging off of it that we know isn't right, we lash out, they pull back, and in doing so run from the Lord, are unable to hear his voice about how to become clean or pruned, and then we further criticize them for walking away. So we dogpile on them and then blame them for not hearing God. All the while, we've been telling them that they're still the woman caught in the act of adultery. All the while telling them that they're still this thing, this issue-identified thing. Because as soon as that encounter happens, it's supposed to be an understanding of your true identity. It's to re-identify who you are. And in that re-identification process, then we can say, I'm now clean by the word that the Father has spoken. And I love this because also it is literally saying that you're already in the process of pruning due to the fact that you're surrendering to what I'm saying. Here's what I mean by that. If I had a nickel for every time I cried out, I was so hungry to become pure that I would actually repent for things I wasn't doing. I would repent proactively. It's like a preemptive repentance. God, I know I'm going to mess up today, so forgive me for that too. God, help me with the anger that I have. Help me with this. Help me with this. Help me with this. Help me with this. I was so desirous of purity that I would repent for things I hadn't even done yet. And in doing so, I would, I would allow that moment to then identify me because all religion is permitted to do is to bring you into sin management or issue management. Remember this. That anything you gain, any, any uh, purity that you actually gain in issue management, you're going to have to retain it through issue management. Any purity you gain through being able to manage your issues, you're going to have to retain by the same way. 
But in his weak, or in our weakness, excuse me, he intends to be made strong. So what is actually said is, and what's actually intended there, is not that we would manage the issue well. It's not that we would, um, you know, decide that we can't drive through certain parts of town. It's not that we would decide that we can't have certain stations on our TV, or certain accesses on the internet, or certain music on our phone, or talk to certain people. Uh, if I had a nickel for every time that people would act in a certain way and they would speak out and say, well, that's not right. They would lash out because they felt like that drew a line that identified their purity. When in reality, what he's actually saying is, you don't have to manage this. I want you to be an authority over that. The only way that's going to happen is by being in an environment where you're no longer identified by your issue. And he actually causes that issue to surface so that he can prune it. But we're unwilling to allow our issue to surface because it requires a vulnerability and surrender so that his word can make us clean. We have to be willing to get that vulnerable. And we have to be willing to, even in the midst of our mess, go out there and do something on behalf of him. That's one of the reasons I, I, I asked this past Sunday that everybody in the church would send a, either a text or share a prophetic word with somebody. I'm not going to ask if you did or not. But one of the reasons I want to do that is because we need to continue to press ourselves in an environment that allows for us to get past what we're struggling with. It's very easy for us to feel like I'm having a bad week, so I'm not going to hear from him and empower somebody else. Maybe in you being someone who's willing to stretch and to blossom and to be fruitful, it will allow him to then have the opportunity to speak to you and to prune what it is he's trying to work out in you. Or you can just stay in the mess. And what he tries to do is say, be fruitful. Because you realize that you're never as available to him to actually deal with some of this stuff as you are when you're being functional on behalf of him. You're never as available as you are when you're vulnerable. And being obedient is vulnerability. So when we are obedient before him and we're willing to lay hands on somebody, even when we're feeling horrible ourselves, you know one of the best times for me to pray for people is when I'm sick? Why? Because to me, that's absolute obedience. I'm sick, God. Can you start with me? You know, maybe like, you know, as, I, as this person gets the healing, like go through me and into them, you know, that kind of thing. Why? Because in that moment, there is something that you surrender. In the midst of you feeling angry, in the midst of you feeling rejected, in the midst of you feeling frustrated, how do we then, how do we become a, here's a real good one. You find this in the Old Testament. How do you give to somebody who has plenty when you're in lack? To me, the highest level of generosity is you giving to somebody who you know has more than you do. Anybody can give to somebody that you can clearly see is in need. The queen of Sheba came to Solomon, who was the richest man upon the earth a hundred times over, and gave him a gift that was fitting for him. 
even though he didn't need a thing. Why? Because it wasn't about him. So in that vulnerability, then we can do something. I'm going to close with this. We've got a whole bunch that we didn't get to, but, but that's okay. Um, one of the things that we have to be really clear about is, is the, the redefinition of, of what it means to be successful, the redefinition of what, really what it, it means to be well. And what I have found is that I'm more aware of issues in my life now than I've been in my entire life and I'm pro I am closer to him than I've ever been. And in many ways, I'm I am now closer to him than I've ever been. And he's dealing with things that I didn't realize I'd never allowed him to deal with when I was crying out for purity the most. I would spend hours a day asking him to help me to purify me. Why? Because I thought that was the gate. I thought that was the door to him. So I didn't really want purity that much. I just thought I've got to have that to get him. And I just, you know, take a scrub brush if you have to. I just want to get to you. And what I'm finding is that those inferior successes will be an identity that then comes upon us that stops us. The rich young ruler wasn't the rich young ruler when he walked away from Jesus having rejected the opportunity to welcome heaven. He was based, he was lack, he was poor because of the nature of what he was unwilling to trust in. So how do we get to this place that we aren't issue related or, or identified, excuse me, and that we also don't allow this thing over here that we've come to a point, man, I have no doubt that, that we could literally stop church, like not do it anymore here and all of you would be fine. You'd get to heaven, you'd have a good relationship with the Lord, you'd hear from him, but that's not the point. And so how do we get to it where we don't allow an inferior definition of success to define us? I, the, the Christian bookstores are absolutely full of books that define how to, you know, 10 keys to unlocking your spiritual life. And, and honestly, within that, there is a, it just is vulnerability. It's just vulnerability. And we began to, to attribute some of these things that we were, in, were really inferior definitions of success as, as making it. And we begin to interpret that and say, okay, I need to model that because it looks good from the outside. What he's literally saying is, I'm looking for a people who will bloom, who will blossom, who will be fruitful to such a high level that it allows me to re-identify who they are, to prune who they are. And even in the midst of us bearing fruit and also bearing mess, we're pruned because what he actually says is, as you listen to my voice, you're being made clean. His voice is what purifies you. Now, I don't need to get into this, but you do realize that what that means is I'm actually finding there are things that he's cleaned from me that I never even had to ask him to clean. Now, I'm not trying to get into, not debating confession and repentance. But I am saying that as we get to that level, his voice begins to refine things. And I don't have to bewail them before him for hours at a time and be sorrowful and get really mad at sin. 
I'm not that person. And as he allows this re-identification to take place, I am no longer the woman at the well. I'm St. Fultini. I'm no longer the one who did this, even though I might still be demonstrating issues that I have. He says, that's perfect. Just keep demonstrating them because now that I see the branch, I can do something about it. That's the way it's supposed to work. And us stewarding the atmosphere of heaven, us stewarding the, the literally stewarding heaven in our midst is going to look like that. It's going to look like a bunch of people who are fruitful enough to be messy. Who are fruitful enough to be really real and who don't stop fruitfulness. Who don't stop fruitfulness because of our messes. Okay? I'm going to say it again. That we don't stop fruitfulness because of our messes. We have a tendency when fruitfulness starts coming in and we see a mess to pull back from fruitfulness so we can focus on our mess. If you're focusing on your mess, your focus is in the wrong place. He didn't say you'll get clean when you focus on your problem. He says you'll get clean when you hear my voice. So, Father, there is much more of this that you want us to get into and, and we ask you that you would help us to spiritually hold our place here, that we would be able to hear what you've said and, and capture this and, and, um, and walk in, in some measure of, of, um, of ownership of this, that, that you would actually help us to be a people that are whole and that are sound and that in many ways we are demonstrating what you've said these things and greater things, that we would be a people that would demonstrate a level of abiding in you, which is the, is the everything, that is the all, is the abiding in you, that as we abide in you, we can be fruitful. And as soon as our mess takes us out of abiding, we've lost the battle. Help us, Father, to stay in the abide, even in the presence of a mess. And help us to be a people, Father, that will not allow ourselves to be issue identified. But what you have said over us will reign supreme. And that we will be a people that everything that we believe about ourselves is going to be the, the result of an encounter with you. A result of what you've spoken over us. And that we would help remind one another of that. And in, embrace that within this atmosphere. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Alright, God bless you. So for those of you, if you did not give a word to somebody last week, that means you give two this week and everybody else give one. Okay, so if you didn't do it last week, you get you get to make it up. You get to give two, and if you did, uh, then awesome, good for you. That means you get to give one. So share something with somebody, bless somebody, um, encourage them, share a word that the Lord put on your heart. Just uh, even let somebody know that you're praying for them. Um, and uh, one of my my favorite things to do is to tell this to random strangers, just to walk up to them and say, Hey, the Lord, I just want to let you know that. The Lord loves you. There's something special he's doing in your heart, and I want to let you know I'm going to be praying for you. And, uh, and you think that, that that's crazy and that people won't like that. They do. They like it. I've yet to have anybody get mad. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online 
at harvesthouse.live.